0: what's up builders are you ready to roll into another episode full of ideas and inspiration to launch your own company today's guest is ard kessels and he spins his tale of launching kogel bearings a high-end ceramic bearing brand for bicycles his story is all about how to launch a small parts brand and create something special when you're limited to off-the-shelf parts the trick use the best combination of ingredients you can and sell with storytelling and customer education. Oh, and he's a dual citizen, living in Germany, but running a U.S.-based business. So if you've ever wondered how to live abroad while starting and running a company, how to develop your own products, and how to build an international distribution network, this one is for you. Welcome to The Build Cycle, the podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business,
1: The Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle.
0: Art, before you started your own bearing company, you were a Rep for or a distributor for another bearing company, right? Correct. Okay, and then we'll get to that in a minute. But before you did that, what was what were you doing? What was your educational background? Uh,
1: my education is actually I'm a garment technologist, so I a...
0: like Garmin, the GPS company, right? <laughs> garment. Or, <laughs> oh, garment, Garment, yes,
1: garment. Okay. I'm, I'm a garment engineer, all right, by education. Uh, so I uh, have a bachelor degree in that I uh, worked in the fashion industry for 10 years Hmm. and then I got really tired of it and decided to leave the industry and open a bike shop. So what were you doing and what is garment engineering? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) Um, um, basically I handled the technical part of the design. So uh, we had designers, I worked for a couple of multinationals. My last uh, stint was at Lee Jeans Mm -hmm. and uh, we had designers that would come up with a sketch and a piece of fabric that they found on a a secondhand market and be like, I want this to become a pair of jeans or a t-shirt or a jacket. So it was my job to go find a manufacturer that can make that fabric. Um, basically execute the entire uh, uh, piece of clothing. So you to, uh, like which, reverse engineer what exactly. um It was all based on, on existing fits and then working with a designer to get it exactly the way they, they wanted to. Um, get the pricing right so the salespeople could take it on the road and sell it at a competitive price, make sure that the samples came in at the right time. In fashion, everything is on a very tight calendar.
0: Hmm, yeah, that's no, a, a 52 cycle. Yeah, calendar every year. Already. Yeah, it was
1: uh, for at that time for me it was more like four seasons and and uh, a couple of maybe little collections in between, but basically if you develop a winter jacket and it comes in a month late, like you've lost you've lost the sales window. All
0: right. What uh, and what year was this?
1: That must have been in 2010, so... Okay, so not too long ago. No, not too long ago. Um, And How long did you do that for? uh, About 10 years. Okay. Yeah. uh,
0: And you went from there, then you opened your own bike shop? Yes,
1: I was living in Belgium and uh, I already started going to school in Belgium. You need to have a, a diploma to be a bike mechanic. So wow. I uh, yeah, they take it serious. <laughs> yeah, I so, so, yeah, I, I spent two years in evening school learning how to be a, a bike mechanic and, well, change tires and adjust headsets and all the things I already did. But um, it's uh, from there, I just took a couple of internships at shops and... Decided to, to go for it and open my my own location.
0: So you were already a cyclist presumably. Yes.
1: Yes. Yes I've been okay. riding mountain bikes since uh, well, I was 16 years old.
0: Right on. So did you grow up in Belgium?
1: Or? I grew up in the Netherlands okay. and I moved to Belgium for work in 2004 So we'll talk
0: about where all you live too because that's kind of an interesting and important part of the business yes. you're running now but Let's let's move in a sort of linear fashion here the, um, the bike shop, how long did you have that for? I
1: had the bike shop. I worked from home for uh, about a year, uh, built up some capital. And from there, I went to a retail location, which I had opened for another one and a half to two years. And in that time, um, my wife, who I met in Belgium, who is uh, from Chicago, got a job offer from the U.S. government and she... Wanted to be a, a, diplomat ever since she was in high school, so once a job offer came, I, I knew I had one, uh, one option. So right. I sold the shop and I followed her to, uh, to America, and I needed a new project. Hmm. Uh, so
0: the shop that you said you worked from home for a year, were you running the shop? A shop
1: or something out of your home. I or? cannot. I cannot confirm nor deny that. Okay. All right. <laughs> it. Uh, yeah. So no, I, I had a within our house. I rebuilt one of the rooms to be a workshop, so I could have customers come over there. But uh, yeah, I might have. I might have had to apply for a couple of licenses that I <laughs> that I did not do.
0: Ah, well, you know, turns out all right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so the you moved from Belgium to back to the states. Correct. For to wear and what um, did you do once you got here?
1: First, we moved to Washington DC, and um, that's where I started getting into bearings. When I had my shop in Belgium, my my biggest frustration was sending out these super expensive bicycles, like I was sending six, 000, seven thousand euro bicycles out on what I thought were the worst bearings. Um, in belgium riding happens in the rain like it's sunday it's like you look at the weather forecast to see what kind of jacket you're going to wear it's not that you're going to stay home because it's because it's raining so um my customers would ride in the rain all the time and within two months these these super expensive road bikes would be coming back and everything would be running in squares and i felt i felt responsible for that because i sold that person you know the bike that was going to last them for the next couple of years at least so um, that's where I started really researching in uh, what how we could improve that and how we could get some real high-quality bearings for bicycles
0: All Right. so were you uh, just researching and kind of figuring out what you were gonna do next?
1: I worked with a company in Belgium uh, that that I worked pretty well with and then in the beginning I started distributing their products but um, it it didn't work out as well. I couldn't really find what I wanted. Communication was not always the way it should be. Uh, so in the end, I just decided it was better if I did it all for myself, develop my own products and take it in the, in the direction that I wanted to take it to.
0: Right, and then we met first, I think at Interbike or something when you were wrapping the other brand because you wanted to show us what was new so we could cover it on Bike Rumor. And then how long did you do that for?
1: Um, I think that was less than a year.
0: Really, that quick? Yeah. It seemed like it, it was longer. <laughs>
1: uh, no. Uh, maybe. It seemed like it was longer for me as well. <laughs> the, um, um,
0: and so, how long from the time you stopped doing that till you actually launched with Kogel bearings?
1: Um, I ran that partially parallel, so I, I was still selling the other product while I was working on sourcing and developing my own uh, line of products so i I think that overlap was maybe six months, and from there, I had a pretty good idea already where where I wanted to go, so it was a matter of finding the the people that can actually produce it what we needed and and take it from there. All right.
0: did you use some of the same suppliers as the, the brand that you were working for before?
1: Mm, I cannot confirm nor deny that as well <laughs> right
0: <laughs> well, so the yeah, what a, what I'm getting at, and I'm curious then, is uh, when you launched this, because you're not manufacturing the bearings yourself, per se, how, do you, how did you find the suppliers you wanted to use?
1: Um, what I did was um, a very critical part of my uh, sourcing is work with one of my friends in Belgium who owns a, a buying office in China, and he specializes in sourcing products. So once I came up with this, that was right up up his alley. And, and he's not a bearing specialist at all, but he was very good at uh, finding the people that we needed. Um, with my background in what I used to do in, in fashion, I become very good at asking the right questions from people to get where I want. Right.
0: So th- what was the next step then? You found somebody who could source the parts and pieces, then what?
1: Uh, from there it was a matter of taking it on the road Um, I've taken a very old-school approach to selling the products Uh, in my first my first eight or ten months in the US I think I've seen 22 states trying to figure out where the market was and this is uh, something I came to a completely new market I, I knew not a single person outside my family in the U.S. So I really had to go and discover where, where the cyclists are, where to find the people that will spend uh, money on on a higher higher end bearing product. Um, was a good learning experience. Right. Well, let's let's put sales talk on hold for a second there. because
0: I want mm-hmm. to go back to still the the creation of the product itself. So you found somebody who can make this stuff. What was it? Was there something about the product from the company you worked for prior that you didn't like or was it mainly just the communication and and kind of a clash of personalities type
1: thing yeah the 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 product was decent there were a few minor things that i wanted to do different and and you know they they were not willing to address that so um like minor minor quality issues Nothing, nothing serious. This a a dust cover here where I was like, you know what, what if we do it like this? Then, you know, maybe it will last longer or it will be a better protection. Tiny little things. Right. Um, so, I'm again, I think it was mainly the communication where it was a reason to, to go in another direction. Yeah, okay. And then, um, so,
0: with the bearings, I, I mean, I understand why you wanted to do better bearings because of the service issues you saw with them, but mm-hmm. it's also in my mind, a very niche and very expensive product that you, you really gotta convince the end customer buying it that it's worth, what, like a five times multiple over a you know, <laughs> with stainless steel bearings or something. So what's, obviously you thought there was a market for that, but what made you think there was a market for um, it?
1: I, I saw that as solving solving a product, uh, problem from from the beginning uh my my i had a couple of things that were frustrations for me as a as a bike mechanic and and i wanted to solve that and that was one to find specific bearings for uh different applications so a road bike bearing to me always had a very different application to a a mountain bike bearing and um the other problems was with the explosion of bottom bracket standards and crank standards that has been happening. I wanted to find a solution to put any crank in any frame without adapters.
0: And so, for the non-cyclists listening, the, yeah, the proliferation of standards, and nowadays we tend to use that word a little loosely, is uh, the the spindle, the axle that connects the two crank arms on either side of the bike, can come in different diameters and widths. The the bearings diameters and sizes that go into the frame itself are vastly different nowadays, and different brands use different sizes, different connection methods, and so forth and so on. So there really is, you get a bike and you have to almost do your homework if you want to change parts out, including the bottom bracket. Um, So you see the problem, but it's, did you, what kind of market research did you do? How did you know there were, that this was a problem for enough riders that you'd be able to sell
1: them? <laughs> yeah, that, that I, I must say, I did not do a lot of in-depth research in that. That was like a matter of going on, even on the bike or comment section, and <laughs> looking at any, any bottom bracket article and seeing how many people complained about it. It was obvious that there is uh, a big disconnect with what the people want and what's actually, available right okay so what in a nutshell then what separates
0: kogel bearings from other high-end because there are other high-end ceramic bearing products on the market
1: there are yes um i think what separates us is the 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 bearings that we offer are specific for road and off-road use that's something that's not very common
0: then you have road-specific and off-road-specific. Yes,
1: correct. And that has... Uh, it, it puts different demands on, on bicycles, whether you're riding on a, on a road and maybe trying to win a race against the clock and trying to shave every little bit of uh, friction versus somebody who rides in the mud and just wants the bearings to be uh, waterproof and, and last throughout an entire winter.
0: All right. So do you, is there nobody else that's doing... Like, give me a product example. Are you talking like bottom bracket bearings in this case? We have Any, road versions, mountain all, bike versions? All our
1: bearings are available with road and, and off-road options. Is there no other brands doing that? Is that unique to you? Um, the brand that I worked with, they, they did something similar. And and I thought that was a good starting point. All right.
0: You know, one of the things that I've noticed that you guys do well is really explain not just the technology but kind of like why somebody would want the bearings or another general bearing maintenance and tech type stuff on your website You, you mentioned that you've just redone your website recently and the blog content is it's it's uh it's good you know the the tech information is good and it's it's written in a very approachable manner um so i'd say that possibly separates you to be honest i haven't looked at a whole lot of other bearing companies websites lately but it, it is a, a good kind of in-consumer sales tool, I think, because it helps explain the benefits of a ceramic bearing. But So in your words, what is the benefit of a ceramic bearing?
1: Um, for me, I ended up with ceramic bearings because I wanted to make the best possible bearing for bicycles. And, and in the beginning, I was not thinking of a specific material, but in the end... There's some benefits to ceramic materials, like you can make it smoother than any metal. You can make uh, you make it harder. So in the end, if executed well, it will be a superior product. Does it last longer? If done well, yes. All right. Ceramic bearings have a very bad reputation, and uh, for for having a short lifespan, I blame that. On uh, high quality, or I should say, low quality products being sold as high quality. All right.
0: So, what is it? What do you do differently with yours to make them last longer versus a product that has the ceramic bearings but maybe doesn't last as long?
1: Without going into too many technical details, basically, there's certain steps that need to be taken to make a high quality uh, uh, bearing. One of that is, for instance, that uh, polishing of our balls is a process that takes 35 days almost. Is that unique to you guys? That's that that's unique to any high-quality bearing. But you can imagine if it is a job that takes 35 days, which is a very long time, and you're looking to cut cost, you might do that for 20 days. Now
0: they just so, put it into like a giant tumbler, like a rock yeah,
1: tumbler type yeah, thing, basically. Yeah, just Huh. That's pretty much how uh, it, it just sits in a tumbler and, and starts off very rough and it gets smoother and smoother and smoother. Like, hmm. like using sandpaper almost. Like you start very rough grit and you go finer and finer.
0: Right. So with the suppliers that you use, do you guys go in and, and spec something to differentiate your products from the other bearings that they're making? and.
1: Yeah, ab- sure absolutely. Um, we, we, we spent a good amount of time specifically developing our seals. Um, can somebody else buy the exact same bearing minus, minus the branding that we do on that? Maybe if they go and they ask the same questions that we ask. But we, we developed our bearing from, from the ground up and spec it to, to get to a point where it was good for us.
0: So you spec all the pieces that go into creating a finished we, bearing.
1: We, we give them the, the parameters of how we want it to end up. All right. So with that
0: design element of creating the parameters and stuff, and the seal design you mentioned, do you do the engineering for that? Do you hire an engineer? How do you come up with those designs?
1: Um, the way that works is with a lot of things, I'm not literate in, in uh, graphic design programs or, or CAD design programs. So um, what I usually do is make a drawing by hand, which I send off to my business partner in Belgium, and he makes like a hand-made technical drawing out of it, uh, really with a pencil. Um, from there, we send that off to a manufacturer and ask them to create the, the, the digital sketches of that um, And that step is very important for us because if they can make the sketch, they show that they understand the product. Right. So, um, and and from there, we send something off like our bottom bracket cups. We can send it off for CNC machining and we give them all the tolerances. Um, It's it's a bit of back and forth, um, but it seems to work for us. Cool. And then on top of the bearings, you've got
0: the thing you have to put the bearings in. So, in most cases, the bottom bracket, you've got a shell that they go into and then that shell is pressed or threaded into the frame so same kind of design process for the shells. correct
1: and that is at the moment the bearings we don't do a whole lot of design on at the moment because we've developed them once we know they're right and the end we, we still develop different sizes when needed but the whole system is done um what we're at the moment doing is with those bearings like you say making products and that's where where we get into the whole idea of starting from a hand sketch and and working to in the end getting samples made testing them uh with uh, first the people that we work with in the office and after that sharing it with our uh sponsored athletes to to take them in what we call the terrain lab
0: All Right, and you guys sponsor some pretty good athletes I mean I've seen your product in the pro pits at some of the major races you know the world cup level races so you're definitely getting it put through the ringer
1: yeah absolutely no we, uh, we we truly believe that if you want to build a product that that holds up well in real world cycling that the only place to prove the concept is in real world cycling so uh, we've been racing with uh, for instance the United Healthcare team since the end of 2014, so that was just after I started Koval Bearings, um, and that's kind of a funny story. I tried to sponsor the United Healthcare team and the company I, I worked with previously. I tried to push them. I was like, "This would be great for our marketing and for our product testing." Um, the United Healthcare never uh, picked up on that. They they never thought they needed uh, a, a better bearing until uh, I gave up on that project and randomly uh, on one of my sales trips I walked into uh, uh, a shop of one of my customers and then the shop manager said, "Hey, do you know uh, do you know Jerry? He runs a bike team." And I did not even ask a follow up question to that. It's like, all right, Jerry, you got a bike team. Until he said his bottom bracket was creaking and I was getting all excited. I was like, well, let me let me fix that. And he comes out with this custom painted team bike. I was like, oh, is that your... Healthcare is your team. <laughs> so, um, on the spot, I took out the, the, the plastic parts that they had in there. I put in one of our parts. And, well, once, once Jerry sent an email to the mechanics, they were uh, more inclined to listen than when I sent it.
0: Right. Good. Well, it kind of leads directly into my next question was, you're a very small company, you know, mm-hmm. it's like you and a business partner and what, maybe a couple of salespeople, right? Uh, no,
1: we have a, a team of, uh, well, myself and three employees in, uh, in Texas. My business partner lives in Belgium. Um, that's about it. Everybody okay. else is contracted. So, for a company that size, how do you
0: get into those sponsorship deals, I mean, that one you kind of lucked into, but then you still got to provide the product and the pros are notorious for needing a lot of <laughs> products, for, especially for a team of that size. But then also you sponsor individual athletes at a pretty high level. Like, how do you afford to do that? Is it product only? Is there cash?
1: For for us, it's, it's very, very clear. We're, like you say, a small company. We don't have large budgets so we are willing to work with everybody that is willing to take product we cannot afford to do um cash sponsorship which also within a large team puts us in a certain bracket of sponsorship like our name will not be on the jersey and i'm okay with that like we're we're a small sponsor that is solving a very specific problem for our athletes so um that's that's the
0: level where we are now yeah well you do a good job of making sure it's seen anyway just because like on the, some of the bikes i've seen you have a little message or something funny you know laser etched into the bottom <laughs> bracket shell so it's still like it becomes photo worthy because pro everybody likes to take pictures of the pro bikes so Absolutely. A smart move for sure the um do you run into issues where if a say a, a athlete or a team is 100 percent sponsored by shimano for their drivetrain reluctance to switch out one of those drivetrain parts like say the bottom bracket or or derailleur pulleys? and How do you overcome that?
1: Absolutely Um, and that is very tough because the larger companies have in their contracts stated that teams are not allowed to take on any third party uh, sponsorships for components that they make Um, in the case of the United Healthcare team we lucked out in, because that specific fitting that their frame and the shimano crank needed shimano did not make that part so even though they make bottom brackets they did not make just that bottom bracket and that for the team was a reason to pick up the conversation and defend kogel towards the the big brother component uh, manufacturer all right so that's where, you know, we locked out, but we fell flat on our face with a hundred other teams where, that we wanted to sponsor. And it was like, uh, sorry, some, some of our sponsors have a problem and see it as a conflict of interest. Right. Well, it's, you found
0: your niche and the, the frames that Shimano does not make. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank God there's me. quite a few. Yeah. So what else do you do for marketing? and and like well before we get to like general consumer marketing for those team sponsorships how do you activate on that like once you've given those bottom rights to the team what do you do with that sponsorship to build your brand
1: for us we are very clear in looking for people that will go out and promote the brand for us because in the end that is all that is sponsorship about for us um I get five, maybe ten emails a week, at least, depending on the season. Saying, "Hey, can you, you want to sponsor me? You want to sponsor my son, who is twelve, and he just won a race in a town that, well, I'm not from the U.S., so I usually haven't heard of that town. <laughs> um, we'll put your name on his jersey. Um, that that's the kind of sponsorship request that that is not." not functional for us if somebody comes to us and says hey i'm not the fastest racer but i um you know i do the occasional uh crit and i love going out mountain biking and i make fantastic photos and i have 10,000 uh, 10, dollars followers on uh on instagram that's somebody that we can talk to
0: yeah, it makes more sense because they're yeah. spreading the word for you.
1: Absolutely. So, so that is a very important uh, selection criterion for us. All right. So
0: beyond that, what do you do for consumer marketing? How do you get the word out to people?
1: Um, that is something that we picked up only recently. If you looked at Kogol four months ago, we had uh, a website that was not very functional. It was basically what we could get for $500 when we started the company. <laughs> um so we, we invested in a very flashy looking functional website and what we what we have been doing since we launched it which is only a month and a half ago is using it as an education tool ball bearings are a forgotten part of the bicycle and i sometimes joke about it and say people spend more time thinking about the color of their handlebar tape than they do about the parts that actually make everything on their bike go around in circles um so there's a a void in the in the knowledge that people have and we're, we're hoping to fill that up with a lot of educational material All Right,
0: is so. the bulk of your product line in sales right now the bottom brackets
1: um actually the the bottom brackets are the core of our line funny enough we designed derailleur pulleys because uh between wheel bearings, derailleur pulleys and um and the bottom bracket, those are the three areas of a bike that we can, you know, cover with a company called Kogel Bearings and not Kogel seat posts and saddles. Mm-hmm. So um we make we make those parts. There's a few more ball bearings on a bicycle that that for us, like a headset is not something that runs around that that spins a lot. So it's not something that we can improve. There's great headset companies, so for this moment, we don't feel that we have to do that. Um, so my point is the uh, the best-selling articles actually are our derailleur pulleys,
0: which is crazy because they, you know, the comments we get when we post about one is <laughs> <laughs> inevitably I can't believe these cost so much for, for a <laughs> small part. Do they really make a difference? But man, when you pick one up, we we were playing with those earlier and. You hold it between your fingers and spin it, and it's literally just insane. It doesn't stop spinning. And I even I was trying to squeeze the shells <laughs> that were capping the bearings, and it made no difference. It's, it, it really is amazing. Um, and that's like total side note. But like When I've been at, say, the Tour de France or something and, and messed with the pro bikes to position for photos, like it just blows my mind when you backpedal the cranks. They just spin, you know. And you think about it, you're dealing with a lot of bearings at that point, chain, you know, like plenty of friction points. It's mm. unbelievable how much smoother the bikes at that level are than what you and I go buy from a store. So mm-hmm. I think a big
1: part of that is is one the part selection, but as well that these guys in the Tour de France they have somebody coming around to wash their bike every day, so they have professional mechanics to optimize those bikes, So nothing. I'm pretty sure if we go out and look at one of your bikes, that we'll find some parts that are semi, semi-worn. semi Yeah,
0: okay, total geeky question yeah. as another side note real fast. The pedals, yes. you know, there's bearings in the pedals, but I haven't seen a single, like, pedal-bearing upgrade kit from anybody. Is it, That's why true. not?
1: Maybe it's an opportunity. Right. We, we haven't touched it yet. Because
0: um, they would be spinning approximately the same rate as the, the bottom bracket ones, if not... I mean, at a higher speed because they're smaller, right?
1: Absolutely true. Um, well, maybe not. High in your speed, in your what? Maybe twenty years of cycling, how many pedal bearings have you changed in your life? Uh, depends on the brand, which
0: I won't get into. But you no? know, a few. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I've, there's a number of pedals down in my office right now that are. Oh. Well, need and- it
1: compared to the amount of bottom brackets that you've changed in your life how how does
0: that relate i mean i'm a, i'm a bad example because we get so many new bikes in yeah. and out of here so it's it's rare to ride a bottom bracket unless it's just really bad but when we i used to race and before i started bike room, yeah there was um some isis uh bottom brace terrible name now but that's it was an acronym for something <laughs> you know 15 years ago um yeah it, those things we were crushing those after like two races and none of us were like pro level you know but
1: yeah, yeah. um yeah for me uh i did my racing days in, in belgium and mountain biking there i would go to three four bottom brackets in a, in a winter easily um pedal bearings I think I can count them on one hand. The times mm. that I change them. So what for do you, that, why do you think
0: it is? Because it's still a wear point, it's still a friction point, and your your body's weight is on this tiny absolutely. little spindle.
1: I, I've never given that any thought. Mm. Maybe there's an opportunity. I'm in the end, our bearings can be sold as a problem solver for somebody that's just tired of keep on replacing bearings, or they can sold be sold as a performance upgrade. Right. So even if the pedal bearing is not a problem solver, a we have to find upgrade. a way to sell it as a performance upgrade. Yeah. Who knows? Don't, no, it's, t- it's don't tell form any form. of our competitors. Yeah, right. Nobody listens to that. This is just between
0: <laughs> you and me. So then as far as future products go, you mentioned that you're working on wheel bearings. Um, I mean, my first question with that is how do you pick and choose which hubs you're going to produce the bearings for, unless you plan on producing your own hub as well, because the bearings, again, for the non bikey geeky people, um, you know, the bearings have to press into a hub shell, and then the axle, the the wheel axle spins on that. So,
1: um, so with the development of those bearings, um, like I said earlier, like the design work on the bearing is done. It's like, uh, it's like designing a pair of denim. And then, you know, once you have the 32 inch size, you've designed a 34 and a 36 inch, but it's not a new, it's not a new set of pants. That's the same for our bearings. So as long as it's the same uh, type of bearing that we're using, we can make it in any size now. Um, so with that, we cover most of the bicycle hubs. There's a couple of companies like Shimano, Campagnolo, uh, Chris King, that use proprietary bearings or a very different bearing system altogether. And for those, we have to say at this point, we do not cover that.
0: So, between, like, say, DT Swiss to Easton to uh, Mavic, right? Are, are these guys using all these different brands using pretty yeah. similar or like yes, a they, stock they, set of bearing sizes? They,
1: we, uh, I'm not saying they all use the same bearing, but we, we could fit a Kogel bearing in in all of them, if, if we adapt it to sizes.
0: Okay, so to adapt it to size, do you have to go back and, uh, like, what are the tooling or machining costs involved in creating a new size?
1: Um, since we do not handle the manufacturing of our uh, bearings ourselves, so we outsource that, um, typically we would look to either get a bearing size that's unique to us, uh, which usually comes with a minimum purchase of, X thousand amount of bearings, usually out of our scope. So what we do is we work with this manufacturer and say, for this particular size, develop it, make it available to your other customers. You know, put their finishing details, their different seals, their different greases. You can put other balls in it, so it's still not the same bearing. But to develop the sizes of the rings, we can share that with uh, with some other companies. Hmm. Okay.
0: Do you- see that it's interesting i never would have thought of doing it that way is that do you see that as a possible like
1: competitive disadvantage in any way or is it um since it's only one of the components that is shared i i don't see that like still the greases the seals that we use are unique to kogel and and i think that the the unique Parts of that is the reason why we developed them. Right. Like that that that's the parts that are important to us. Cool. Right
0: on. So what's beyond the wheels? What else do you see Kogel doing?
1: That's hard to say. At the moment we are not so much investing in, in, in new products. If a new standard comes out for a bottom bracket that uh, we feel is going to survive, by all means we'll jump on it, but I don't, uh, I often get the question, will you do headsets? Uh, for me, it's not something where we can improve performance or solve a real problem.
0: All right, for when new so standards I, come out, uh, so go ahead. Oh go ahead.
1: yeah, no, sorry, so so I, my point is I won't in the near future be developing a headset. Right on, uh,
0: the when a new standard comes out, like we just had, um, God, what is it, BSA 30 or something, like basically yeah. a 30 millimeter threaded yeah. bottom bracket. Are you guys making one for that already? or
1: We've had it in the line since the start of the company and we're actually redesigning it because I found a couple of things where we could tweak it and, and make it work better.
0: So you guys, you jumped into that new standard right well, away.
1: That standard has been around since the Zip Vuma Quad uh, crankset in the early 2000s.
0: So, so even though they're just make, kind of presenting as this new thing at Handmade Bike Show like last year or something, it's been around, um, huh?
1: maybe uh maybe you're confusing it with uh bsa30 with t47 that's what i'm thinking of, yes and 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 i apologize for the non-cycling people that listen to this yeah. if you want to go get a coffee or well this is come back every
0: every year there's one or two new standards for something that's essentially been working yeah. fine as a yeah. normal threaded bracket for years and years so that's one of the challenges when you're a small company right is yeah you you have to look at all these new things coming in and so the T41 so is
1: what it is. Mean. Uh, yeah, like, the uh, T47 is a standard that was introduced and if you look at the technicality it is actually a very good standard. It is. But the problem is what I call too little too late. Um, there's so many brands that are already invested in in other standards. There's a couple of limitations as well to T-47 that you need to make an aluminum insert in the frame and that in, in cycling basically adds weight and that's, that's the devil. So you, there, there's a couple of limitations. Um, I have not seen it picked up by any major brands. So are I've, you sitting it out then for and, now? That's exactly what we're doing, and that is because on the frame making side, it has not been picked up by any major brands. On the bearing and bottom bracket making side, it has been picked up by four very major players. Right. Okay. So for that reason, um, yeah, we're we're sitting it out. If it gets picked up by Specialized, Cannondale, Giant, and uh, all the big names, we'll definitely jump on it, and we'll we'll make sure that that we have one that somehow we think at least works better than the others
0: Right. all right so let's switch gears to the the business management side of Kogel because you have lived in Suarez Mexico hmm while you've been running Kogel um, and now back in the Netherlands I think now, right now we're in Germany Germany sorry, man. sorry my my background is very you're confusing everywhere. right but you're running a US based company for these locations so how do you do that
1: so um The technicalities of that in in the current day and age are super simple. Like our entire company is cloud based. I carry a a 4G iPad wherever I go so I can see what's happening in in the company on paper. Now, when that comes down to what's actually happening in the warehouse, that is all people. Like I I have uh, an operations manager that works in our warehouse runs the entire uh the, the business is based in el paso texas because when we were living in juarez mexico that was right across that was the closest us town so that's where kogo was founded and we're still there um it's it's 100 percent trust it's every day on skype it's 200 text messages a day <laughs> it's trying to stay in contact with um uh, with the people but I know that that if my operations manager Sam, if he wins the lottery tomorrow I know that I'm living in El Paso for the next six months. (laughs) Right, From a
0: setup standpoint though, were you or are you a US citizen?
1: I am a US citizen, I was born in the Netherlands. uh, and, and have since naturalized to be a, a dual citizen with the United States and the Netherlands. Okay.
0: If, is that how... I, unfortunately, I don't know enough about how uh, foreign people or entities can own a U.S.-based company. So if you were not a dual citizen, would you be able to own a U.S. company or start yes, one? Yes, yes, yes.
1: I had a I had a green card uh, before I became a citizen. And once you have a green card, you're legally allowed to work in the U.S. and, and start a business. Okay. The,
0: you mentioned a lot of online talk and Skype and chat and this and that are like, what are some of the daily or, or ongoing challenges with being so far away from the main office?
1: Um, my, my main challenge at the moment, living in Germany and working with an office that is eight time zones away is, is just that time. Like I'm a I'm a morning person. I get up in the morning mm-hmm. and before lunch I try to get as much done as I can because I know after 3 p.m. I'm working at half pace. Right. So and that's when everybody else is waking up. Basically, <laughs> uh, yeah, if I talk to my customers on the East Coast, they're they're 6 hours behind, so my my 4 to 5 p.m. is when the shops start opening and I can actually call them and make sales calls right and then, so
0: what are the the people based in the u.s. then what are they doing are they sales or something
1: else? um everywhere we're uh, we're a small company of three people uh, our three employees and myself so we wear many hats so for myself I handle uh, sales in some regions on the East Coast and California um, some the operations manager handles sales for Texas Florida, and started reaching out into Colorado. Um, we have one person that stays in the office, uh, handles all the the shipping, picks up the phone when Sam and I are traveling. Um, we've had one part-time employee that we now uh, assigned to be full-time uh, video editor.
0: Wow, just to create content for blogs and social media and stuff? Absolutely,
1: yeah. It's a, it's a big decision that we made. Uh, well, we made it last year, but we, we kicked it off at the beginning of this year. And I, I truly feel that, that by educating our customers, they're, they're going to feel a connection with uh, Kogel, and it's going to be a brand on top of their mind once it comes time to replace their bearings.
0: All right. For the sales, do you guys sell direct to consumer?
1: Um, We do all of the above. We have a distributor for the U.S. We have distributors on uh, four different continents. We sell to bike shops in the U.S. direct from uh, from our office. And we sell consumer direct via our website.
0: Now, why do you do... The direct-to-shop, like retail direct, and then also have a distributor. They just Is there not enough overlap?
1: There is some overlap, but um, in the end, it is whatever gets it to the people. So um, we, we work closely with our distributor. We, we don't fight them on trying to get the sale. Uh, if I work with a shop and I hear they work with the distributor, I usually say, by all means, Guy. Go ahead and buy it from the distributor. All right. You know, in the end, uh, they, they put in a lot of work. They were one of the first big companies to believe in us. So the last thing I want to do is uh, steal steal the dollars out of their uh, sales. Right. From inventory, I want
0: to go to inter- international distribution in a second. Uh, yeah. But inventory-wise, the more bottom brackets and frame types that you have, it just keeps adding skews and skews and skews. Is there like a minimum number of projected sales that you guys see before you'll introduce a model? Or how do you figure out what you want to create and then hold in the inventory?
1: Um, what we actually keep in inventory is, is something that we plan, like with forecasting and sales, we have a very short buying cycle uh, of about our, our lead time between placing the order, emailing the order, and getting the product back in the uh, warehouse. Is about five weeks oh, that's so that that is really short and that allows us to keep a, a relatively small inventory
0: how many do you have to order at a time for a specific model? um
1: we made agreements with our manufacturer that they keep uh, the products in stock uh, unbuilt so they the products that they, they assemble them to order, but they keep all the parts there. And with that, we, we can order very small numbers.
0: So you might have, like, size X of a bearing, and then that fits into 20 different bottom bracket shells. Correct. And so they'll yes. assemble that and ship Our it. Our
1: entire uh, <laughs> line of bottom brackets runs on two bearing sizes. Hmm.
0: Are the bottom bracket shells and the bearings made at the same
1: place? Uh, no. No. Uh, that's... Uh, some parts we uh, keep in, uh, in in China with the manufacturer of the bearings so they can assemble them there and send us the completed product. Uh, others, we do the CNC machining separate from the bearings. We bring it over to El Paso and we do all the assembly there. Okay.
0: Have you run into any issues with uh, tolerance discrepancies since they're not made at the same place?
1: Um, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> um. Sometimes we, uh, we catch that early if we, we start working with a, with a new CNC shop. We always ask them to send, uh, before they send the production run, to send a couple of pieces for us to check. So they can still adjust it before the, the production run actually gets shipped. Um, but yeah, it happens all the time. And sometimes you just put a couple of hundred bottom bracket cups in the trash or you send them out as Christmas decorations to your customers. So if that happens in December. Yeah, what kind of
0: steps do you take to prevent something like that from happening? I mean, other yeah. than having them send them ahead of time to test. Yeah,
1: it's, uh, it's, it's a matter of communication. Um, once we get to work with a manufacturer, it's usually a lot of hand holding before we get to where we want and before they understand that on some parts of an aluminum cup, We can have a slightly wider tolerance, but for the two contact areas, so the part that that presses into the frame and the part that the bearing is pressed into, the tolerance needs to be ridiculously tight. Right. Like if you then think of a a flange that just works as a frame stop when you press it into the frame and that that sort of floats there, if that is 50 millimeters or 50.2, that's not a deal breaker. But but one fiftieth of a millimeter off on the press area, that's, you know, we send it to the trash. Yeah,
0: man. <clears throat> for international distribution, I imagine it's gotta be a little bit easier for you to manage and, and start with a new distributor because you're based in Germany, you know, you're based in Europe. Hmm. Um, but for the people that don't know, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, you know, European distribution is very, very different in terms of how many partners you have to deal with, because here you could have one distributor covering 50 states. Europe, it's almost like you've got every country would be its own state here, but you need a different distributor for almost every single country you deal with.
1: Absolutely right. And this is something that having lived on on both sides of the Atlantic and and having run businesses and and worked in in, uh, international businesses before, This is something that I I learned in that time, so I I am already in that mindset, but it's a critical mistake, I would say, for uh, American companies to want to expand into Europe and to overtake the European market. And then they get to Europe and they're like, holy, I'll, I'll bite my tongue a little bit, but they find out that there is no European market. Legally, you can ship your products from the UK to Germany to Greece and back to Italy and you never have to pass uh, a border or, or pay a customs duty, but your, even your, your carrier in all those countries, they're going to speak a different language. So you have to live by different rules, different regulations, uh, and this is the main reason why for, for us as a US-based company, we work with the distributors, but we, uh, you know, they, they're the specialists in, in their local market. They understand the laws, they understand the market, what will sell and what will not. Um, but yeah, we're, we're, we're aiming at having probably 14 distributors just for Europe.
0: Wow. And for 14 countries or will it be again over Yes. Uh,
1: some, some things are, are language bound. So, for instance, we just open the distributor for Germany, and they will also cover Austria and Switzerland because German is spoken in all those countries.
0: Alright, and another thing that I've seen people have some real headaches with is not just the distribution there, but when they go over for sales trips or or for marketing events, crossing a a country border, I think Switzerland might be particularly onerous in this regard, is you've got to catalog everything you're bringing in (laughs) And then make sure you have all of that same stuff going out, or you can have things confiscated or some fines levied. What's, uh, I mean, real quick, like have you had experience with that, or maybe some tips for people that are going over on sales trips?
1: Specifically for that, not so much because I I don't carry any product into into any countries other than you know I'm I'm in a lucky position that our parts are very small, so I just thrown into my luggage um you know if you show up with a suitcase full of you know a clothing collection that's very different uh scenario that's hard when you get to customs to say that it's personal use or so uh, for me I, I personally don't have any experience with that okay. but uh, i i can imagine that's very complicated
0: yeah well i know like some of the team trucks going in and out <laughs> oh those guys, the these guys are crying we have
1: <laughs> how many cassettes yeah and uh, how many tubes <laughs>
0: So for somebody that wanted to launch a a component brand or a small parts brand, in particular one where, like your company, where the part is used as part of a bigger contraption, you know, in this case, Mm -hmm. the bearing goes on a bike, um, what are maybe a couple of quick pieces of advice for them and maybe some of the challenges you faced?
1: couple of pieces of advice to the uh, decisions that that I made and I don't know if that was conscience or if I was just lucky to end up with that result uh, is that our products are very expensive and small uh, almost like jewelry and that makes them super easy to ship um, And I always think about if I were selling like wheels or a, a handlebar for a road bike which which is about the same size as our or the same price as our bearings yet the size is like what 20 times bigger so all of a sudden you have to think of your warehousing you have to think of you know shipping companies you can't uh, bring it in in air freight you have to put it on a container which is going to lengthen your uh, lead time if you do it overseas mm. um, with our products being um, and and I don't mean that in a negative way, but they're they're small and expensive. That makes them easy to ship. We bring our entire inventory in on DHL. Hmm. We've never used sea or air shipping. Nice.
0: What about some challenges that we haven't already talked about? Anything stand out as giving um, you trouble over the last couple of years? Oh yeah,
1: um, <laughs> <I'm>, i I. <laughs> the one thing that I have to warned people for. If, you, if you're if you not used to doing uh, business with China I have three letters for you. C-N-Y It's Chinese New Year oh. and only in your first year you're not going to remember it and after that you'll learn. It's basically the entire country shuts down for a month. Which so, month? Um, it moves. It's, it's around like January, February ish. But no you, by October you start sending messages to your manufacturers um, to ask what days they're closed um, when they will restart their production uh, to give you an idea of what happens is that literally everybody in China is going to their hometown so that's a population of 1.3 billion people I think
0: and they all head out to the country
1: <laughs> I I'm, I'm I'm super happy I haven't seen it but I would love to see it one day but oh, yeah. it's, it's it must be absolute madness so what happens in the factory is that they work until this day, and whatever is not ready on this day is going to be laying on the floor for a month. yeah so you want your product to come out, of course, every one of their customers wants the same um, and 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 it's it's a hard deadline like even the DHL stops working in that time so you can put all the pressure if you were able to put all the pressure on your manufacturer to finish the job in overtime it's like there's no way to get it out of the country jeez it's crazy so so chinese new year all right take that as a piece of advice yeah
0: well Ard, thanks so much and uh so where can people find you guys online
1: it's- um our website is uh, kogel.cc. so c-c. Um, We're on uh, Instagram and uh, Facebook, just use the same search term and you'll find us right there. Thanks so much. Thank you.
0: Three things stood out for me. First, he was limited to existing bearings, seals and races but he made the most of it by specifying a premium combination of the three, then adding his own treatment protocol and finishing to create a top-notch product that would be difficult for others to copy. Second, he's selling people on the concept by providing honest information through his website and social media. It's an expensive product, and some of his benefits aren't immediately obvious, so this open communication with potential customers helps convince them it's a worthy upgrade. Lastly, it's always interesting to hear how anyone can manage a company remotely, especially internationally, and tie together production from Asia, sales and distribution globally, and a U.S.-based workforce. It sounds big, but he's still a very small company, you know, the kind of company any one of us might dream of building. Check out the show notes, photos, and links at TheBuildCycle.com, and be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher like what you're hearing hit me up on facebook twitter or instagram i'm at the build cycle on all three and let me know what you think until next time keep building